0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four. Um, and unless you use your table of contents, this is sometimes a little bit trickier one to find because it's right towards the back. Um, you end up with Hebrews and James and Philemon, First and Second Peter. If you're a little bit too far, you've got to go back to Hebrews um, after First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon and then Hebrews. And there are certain passages in Hebrews that are probably very uh, familiar to us. And Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 are really two short verses that if you read what comes before and if you read what comes after, it almost seems a bit disconnected. Like, well, why did these two just get thrown in here? The section before um, Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 is really an explanation of Sabbath because Hebrews, this book was written to the Hebrews who were also coming to know Christ and a reminder that of all of the Old Testament, of all of the law, that still counts, that still matters and that's what we're going to hear in Hebrews 4.12. But Jesus Christ is the center point of revelation. And it is the supremacy of Christ over all other customs, over the law. That is the end game that we're pointing towards. However, all of the Old Testament still matters. And so we have an explanation of Sabbath. And the author of Hebrews does some interesting things, but one, one thing that should stand out a little bit is in verse 7. There's a reference to Psalm 95, which is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is an invitation to hear the word of the Lord, and to not just hear it as words that were written down on scrolls or memorized words by rote, but that this should be living in our hearts And then following these two short verses that we have almost just a recap of what we hope Scripture is doing, of what kind of activity we pray God is up to in the midst of this, then we go into probably a more familiar verse about we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and so we hold firmly to the faith that we profess. But here today, as we think about what Scripture is, about what effect it has on our lives, how it directs us how it guides us and how God speaks through his word we're just going to zero in on hebrews 4:12 and 13 but before we do so let's pray god may your word be our rule your holy spirit our teacher and the glory of your son jesus christ our primary concern Illumine your word to us, that it may be living and active through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of God we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Short, sweet, but incredibly powerful words. This was one of my favorite verses when I was in high school, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And I wish that was more because of my developing theological um, curiosity. But, you know, I think it also just had a lot to do with that there were swords in the verse. Because of all the ways that Scripture is described by by Scripture, so we're a little bit circular here, how does Scripture talk about Scripture? This idea of the word as a sword is used for sure twice. We have it here in Hebrews 4 in the New Testament. We also have it in Ephesians 6 in the New Testament, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, there's a little bit of a historical anachronism here because this style is a little bit later on in history than what double-edged sword the author of Hebrews would have in mind. They would have in mind a shorter Roman gladius, which would have been the most common sword of the day. But this still gets the point across. I didn't even think of that as a pun. (laughs) That was honestly, that one just snuck up on me. But what do we know about swords? They're, they're made of metal usually, sometimes wood for practice. That way we don't cut our fingers. And don't worry, this one's not particularly sharp. But we know that they have edges. We know that they're used in battle. And we also know that if you're going to use a sword, you should be familiar with it. Not only its style and ability, you should know something about its weight, how it's balanced. This one's not very well balanced. Um, you should be familiar with it. It should be something that feels natural for you to use, which is part of why this idea is such a fitting analogy of the word being like a sword, one that you should know well and know how to use it and how to not use it. Because this goes beyond, you know, keep out of reach of children. One of the phrases that I thought of years ago when loving on this verse in particular was that the Word of God, if the Word of God is a sword, here in Hebrews we're told that the Word of God is meant to pierce hearts, not to cut throats. The Word of God does its work within us, judging the thoughts and attitudes or intentions of the heart, and that can have an effect on us. That can feel some of the conviction, and and there is sometimes pain with conviction. But our use with this is to be familiar with it, to know how it directs our radical obedience as we're sent out into the world, to spend time in, in a reflective lifestyle of getting familiar with this word, with the sword. But also to know that in authentic community, we should be studying this together. We should know what it is that we're holding on to and what it is that we're talking about when we read the word together. And when we do that, we should with great sincerity say, when we, when we get done reading the word, we say, this is the word of the Lord. It is with joy that we should say, thanks be to God, that God gave us this revelation in Scripture. The Belgic Confession, one of the Reformed confessions that we use as, as a standard to articulate concisely what it is we believe The Belgic Confession describes the means by which we know God, first by creation, um, more of a general revelation, but then also, secondly, this is Belgic Confession, Article 2. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. God's revelation of who Christ is, is more clear in the scripture. We see God at work in nature. That's the first part of Article 2 of the Belgic Confession. We see God at work in nature, but the clarity by which we know that Jesus Christ lived on this earth was betrayed was crucified, died, was buried, remained dead for three days, and then rose again with the promise of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. We know that more clearly by God's holy and divine word. Even it said, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. It doesn't say that we necessarily get answers to every question that we have. But as much as we need in this life for God's glory, to glorify God and for our salvation. Because the Belgic Confession also describes Scripture as uh, sufficient for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith, and that everything that one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. Everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in the Word which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. But, swords are not alive on their own, right? This is a piece of metal. It's been forged together, it's been wrapped around with a handle, but the sword by itself is not alive. If no one is holding it, it really can't do you much harm other than if you step on it. And that just means you're careless and you should have hung it up on a wall where it could be on display. Unless you have a toddler, then you should just hide everything. (laughs) But the sword by itself is not living and active. And so the analogy that the author of Hebrews is using in just these two short punctuated verses to drive home the importance of the word of God is this, that it's living and active. Now it should be living and active in us, but that's not the first set of what I would call the agency of Scripture. That's not where it starts. It starts with the Holy Spirit. The alive part of the Scripture, the reason the Scriptures are known as living and active, is because God is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. That's why when, when we pray the prayer before the reading of the Word, we always mention in some way the Holy Spirit. That's what makes Scripture living and active. It's not the, the medium by which the Word is given, whether memorized or written on a scroll or printed on pages or um, coded into pixels on a screen, but it is the way in which the Holy Spirit is at work. That is what gives Scripture its agency. It is God at work. Second Peter chapter 1. Um, specifically verses 20 and 21, are one of the passages that the Belgic Confession uses to articulate this view of Scripture that we understand that it's God at work that makes the Scripture living and active, first and foremost, before we have anything to do with it. And those verses go like this from Second Peter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will but prophets though human spoke from god as they were carried al- as though as they were carried along by the holy spirit so the prophets and the authors though human definitely there is at some point a human agency of putting pen to ink to paper though human they spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit This is what makes the word living and active on its own. But then how should it be living and active in us? Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Dividing soul and spirit um, almost seems like a redundancy soul and spirit, um, even in the way that Scripture uses those words. It, it's not necessarily a, a straight formula of what we have, but what we do know is how we talk about these words. Do you ever talk about someone, maybe they're, um, they have a, a, a jealous spirit or they kind of have an anxious presence? or they're, um, We describe people having a certain spirit about them. The Psalms use the language of my soul is downcast within me. And the description in Hebrews, talking about the word of God, which primarily is talking about the Old Testament, but we make a theological move to understand the Old and New Testament as the word of God, living and active. This is judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. This is getting right down to those gut-check moments of what's going on within us. And so we do read Scripture, and we should, but this also paints a picture of Scripture reading us. We read Scripture, and that makes it alive and active in us, but the alive and active side is also in God reading us, in God speaking into our lives. I can't tell how many times, even in my short beginning of ministry, I have heard people say, You know, I opened my Bible, or my devotion was the exact right word for me to hear today. That happens again and again and again. That's not chance, that is God at work, God being living and active through the written word. So we read scripture, we study. But Scripture also reads us, giving us a mirror to hold up ourselves, to hold up to ourselves and see the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Psychology as a field, which I like quite a bit, um, psychology as a field has given much time and attention to answering the question why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? I know that did not start with Sigmund Freud. That's psychiatry. It started with Wilhelm Wundt. I'm 99% sure of that. Where's Jim? Good. Wilhelm Wundt. Um, Judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Why do we do what we do? Do you ever have moments where you're not really sure why you do what you do? why you reacted or acted in the way that you did? Do you ever have one of those just out-of-character moments when you're not really sure what happened, but that, that wasn't you? That wasn't normal for you? We all have those. you ever have some people that they just get under your skin and you're not quite sure why? But there's some thought and attitude of your heart that might even be a mystery to you. Scripture in faithful reading, is one area of our devotional practice of our life of discipleship where we have that mirror held up that we hopefully gain some clarity, that we might understand why we get frustrated, but that's not where we get to stay, that we grow in compassion even for our enemies. Why do we do what we do? God knows why we do what we do. Even when we are not quite sure why or where it came from. That makes Scripture a gift as we grow in maturity in Christ. It's one of the ways in which Scripture is living and active, judging these thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And I hope that this is also heard with a sense of good news, because this isn't just about being torn apart and knowing every miserable part of our psyche. This is also about understanding some of the best of who we are and growing in maturity in those things. Sometimes we as Reformed folks, um, in that whole uh, tulip analogy, T being for total depravity, we get like an A plus in that. We can think about all the things that are terrible about us. But part of what Scripture is going to do, living and active, living is going to bring life to us. That we may grow in understanding, in our calling, in our clarity by which we reach out to our neighbor, in our boldness by which we are able to share. And this is because Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is living and active within us. So read Scripture and let God read you in those moments. Be honest about everything going on, the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. And even where there's not clarity, God will bring clarity. For the description of of the word here is one that's living and active and very sharp. Downright surgical when we're talking about dividing joint and marrow. Be honest in your reading of Scripture with God, even the parts that maybe seem confusing at first, and bring our confusion both before God and before an authentic community to grow in our understanding of who God is calling us to be as a people. If the word is living and active, which it is, it's by God's good grace. The same God who loves you also wants to give you illumination into your life to help you sort out the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. May is also Mental Health Awareness Month, something that we should be mindful of, thoughtful and attentive to the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, things that are going on that we just can't snap our fingers and fix grudges that we carry or griefs that are deep within our soul that we just can't quite sort out and sort through. Scripture has its place in bringing us along in paths of life, even where there is deep grief and pain. And Scripture also helps us to be happy about the right things, not rejoicing over our enemy's suffering, but rejoicing first and foremost over what God has done for us, and seeking the human flourishing of all God's people. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, says Hebrews 4.13. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This echoes into James chapter 1 where we're told to not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. That we don't just know a lot about Scripture, but that it is also evident in our lives. In simple ways, such as the fruit of the Spirit, do we see love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is it evident, not just that we can memorize those words in their sequential order, but that the fruit is actually present, that people can see that in us, that's the way that Scripture is living and active in us. Now, this does not take away from the life of the mind. I'm a pretty big fan of learning and study and all of that. But head knowledge is not the end game that we have in mind. When I think of that, I can't help but to uh, appreciate one other stage prop that I have. This is an incredibly unwieldy sword. You have to have the wingspan of a small pterodactyl even to pull it out, which I so conveniently do. This sword is, is huge, and in fact, it's actually very unwieldy. Um, And if you're wondering where I got this, it was actually confiscated by one of the RAs when I was in college, and at the end of the year, nobody knew what to do with it, so they gave it to me. Um, And I've had it ever since. Um, It was like a graduation present that I never asked for. But it's unwieldy, and actually, its actual use on the battlefield was basically like a spear just to, like, survive the horses coming at you and then swing it back and forth. You can't do much else with it. It's unwieldy, and for me, it serves as an analogy of if everything that you know about Scripture is in your head, it really won't do you much good. It might look impressive, you might be able to show off to your friends, but if it's not in your heart, it's just a bulky accessory to your mind." Scripture is meant to be in our heart. And Hebrews 4 says as much. It's judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, not showing off what we learned with our mind. Now, I believe that Scripture memorization and study are all important and that they all have their place. I think ministers should be trained well to study and interpret the Scriptures faithfully. But you don't become a wizard when you get your MDiv. it's not just in the mind. It is, but it has to shape us in our hearts as well. And the invitation here in Hebrews 4 is to let it hold up a mirror to our hearts and to sort out everything that's going on inside of our heart. For that reason, though it's small, this is my favorite example Because this is a little sword that you actually strap to you. And it becomes a part of who you are. And that actually limits some of what you can and can't do. Just as we grow in maturity with Christ, throughout all of the New Testament, there are people learning new things that they can do because Christ has died for them. And also they're learning things that maybe they should not do because they claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior with no other gods before them. This is a picture of what it means for Scripture to become a part of who you are. When it moves, you move. And when you move, it moves. Because Scripture needs to be in our hearts. And so if it were a choice between memorizing the whole Bible, but not showing any sign of the fruit of the Spirit, or not being able to quite remember what book of the Bible the fruit of the Spirit is in, it's in Galatians, not really sure where it is but people know that they can see the fruit of the spirit within you it's the latter that points towards god being living and active in our lives where the words that we know the words that we study become a part of who we are inseparably so so memorizing has its place deep study has its place But the goal is for it to shape and form who we are. Our words, our deeds and actions, even the thoughts and attitudes of our heart are meant to be given to God and that the word might be living and active and that we get to give account for all of these things. But that's going to include the good times too when we got it right and when God was alive within us, and when that was evident to those around us. For the word of God is living and active. May it be living and active in your heart, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, may your word live in us, Lord, may your Holy Spirit dwell in us. May the routines of our week, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts reflect time spent with you, both sorting out the parts of us that we're still sorting out and also celebrating the areas in which you are living and active within us. May we grow in faithfulness and maturity and into your likeness, that your life may be evident in our life. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. We have come to have communion with the same Christ who promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. That in the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread.